This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to Rock to Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Joining us for this episode is Emmy Award-winning screenwriter, novelist, and former NME contributor, David Quantic. Hello, David. Hi, how are you? <laughs> well, all the better for seeing you, as ever. Well, not seeing him, because he's actually just disappeared out of the shot. Sorry, I was... I heard a buzzing noise and I turned off a speaker. Jolly good. Bless you for working with us. A little later, we'll talk about Teenage Fan Club and Marion Faithful and everything else that's new on Rock's Back Pages. But first, let's go back to the beginning of the Quantic story. Um, how did you fall in love with pop music in the first place, David? Well, when I was a kid, I wasn't really a pop fan. We had a dance set from the neighbours that had... It had a Val Dunican album. It had seven little girls kissing and a hugging in the back seat with Fred. It had Itsy Witsy Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, a couple of other singles, but it had two Goons albums. So my thing was comedy. I always listened to comedy records. I didn't really get the charts. We didn't watch Top of the Pops. But then punk happened at about the time I went into the sixth form. And I made a load of new friends, kids from other schools who were massively into punk and John Peel and things like that. And I wanted to hang around with them. So I started listening to their music. So I basically skipped 25 years of rock music and came in with punk, So, which was perfect for when I became a music journalist and I knew nothing about anything that had happened before 1976. And that was it, really. After that, everything. So I just became obsessed with music and have been ever since. <laughs> what was your favourite like punk group that you came in with? Oh, that's easy. That's Buzzcocks. I mean, I love the Sex Pistols, particularly the singles. Um, but no, Buzzcocks, just because the songs are great, the guitars are great, they also kind of outlasted punk because the Clash is sort of like meat and potatoes pub band who liked reggae and rap and the jam are just a meat, meat and There's a lot of meat potatoes in punk. There's a lot of stodge. <laughs> and yeah, the Buzzcocks were just fleet of foot and funny and sexually ambiguous, which is not what you could say about Sham 69. <laughs> the sexually ambiguous Jimmy Percy. They were not ambiguous. <laughs> I remember when you first came into the enemy offices, which I guess would have been 83. How did right. you, did you just walk in off the street? What was your entree into that sort of demi-monde? I remember my first day I went in, I'd written to Neil Spencer 
told him the enemy was rubbish. I'd become angry for some reason because Matt Snow had done a review of a Bob Seger album. And I'd written, and I love Bob Seger, but for some reason this is an annoyance. And I wrote to Neil, and the letter contained the words, Bob Seger is not enough, in huge capitals. <laughs> and, yeah, so he offered, he said, we'll come in and see if you can do better. And I remember my the day I went in to see Neil, because it was Danny Baker's leaving drink. And Danny was sat on a desk in the corner with Andy Gill and I think Monty Smith, just regaling them. And I presume that's what he did his entire time. He just regaled people. <laughs> then I went and saw Neil, and he gave me a Peter Tosh album, because I wasn't daft. I said I liked reggae, knowing that I had discerned that Neil liked reggae. Canny operator. And the fact that he said I and I in sentences. But I did love reggae, so he gave me a reggae album and a punk album. That's all I knew about. And that was it. I started writing, and I never looked back. That's a heartwarming. Sorry, heartwarming. Heartwarming. That's a heart. Heartwarming, I think. <laughs> Let me get the words out. That's a heart. I can't say it. <laughs> That's a heartwarming tale, David. A heartwarming tale. It I, is. I, I mean, what I remember about you is that unlike a lot of angsty young men and women, for that matter, who came into the enemy office, you were just very genial from the get-go. You were immensely likeable straight away. I don't know if it was the Plymouth accent or just you were very – you were just friendly and unassuming, and you always have been, and you were just, well, funny. That goes without saying you talk about the Goon Show. I mean, to some extent, this episode is going to be about kind of humorous writing about pop because you were very funny from the get-go. Did you establish that as a signature style straight away, do you remember? Well, I just wrote the way that I liked. And the thing was, I mean, the people that I loved at NME, the writers that I loved, apart from Paul Morley, who wasn't very funny at all, but, you know, (laughs) Ian Penman was really funny and really charming. Andy Gill was funny, but, you know, Julie Birchall was really funny. Danny Baker was really funny. Charlie Murray was really funny. Nick Kent, not so funny. But for me, that was part of the 70s enemy tradition, that, you know, you would be irreverent. You can't be irreverent and bleak. There are no irreverent goths. So to me, that was part and parcel of it, that you would love music, but you would take the mickey out of it as well. Mm, yes. You know, I mean, the whole history of Brian Ferry in the NME, how gauche can a gaucho get? That kind of thing. That wasn't what the face was doing. The face were reviewing his trousers. The enemy was mocking his jackets. Yes. So that to me was you loved music, but you took the mickey out of it. Yes. I mean, what's your memory of, of enemy at that time and in the 80s and some of the other writers that you came in with? I'm obviously thinking about Stephen Wells. In one of the pieces that was, <laughs> that we've chosen to put on the homepage this week, which is about Lloyd Cole, you refer to Susan Williams and treat her as a, as a sort of bona fide female, which, of course, yeah. she wasn't. She oh, yeah. was Seething Wells, also known as Stephen Wells. You sort of came in around the same time as him, and I think you were pretty close friends with the late Stephen Wells, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I mean, we ended up, we've probably come on to that, we ended up writing a column in the NME together. We were about the same age. And again, we wanted to be funny. I mean, when I came in at the NME, it was a really interesting time. Because it was a very serious paper. There was you and Don Watson, and there were a variety of people. And the bands around at the time, we'd had, you know, punk, 
and we had the fun of two-tone. We weren't really very good at new romantics and that kind of thing. So it was people like the birthday party. There were, there were the new American bands coming in from that kind of green on red vibe. You know, the biggest American band were R.E.M., who weren't famous. The Smiths were just about to happen. It was, it was quite not a bleak time, but it wasn't a jolly time. I think even Madness had gone a bit bleak. You know, it was like that. It was a bit like that bad. takes some doing. Yeah, it was when like that. Madness album. went bleak. When mad, yeah. when bad manners went electro goth. <laughs> so it was, it was a serious time. Yes. You know, it wasn't Jollity Farm at all. Another of the pieces, you have chosen this Style Council review from 1984 and playing Cardiff. It's a great piece. It's funny. You're quite nice about them, given that you said that Weller had words with you after it. My memory, David, I mean, and this may be a very, very false memory, is of being in the office when Weller called to speak to you to give you a dressing down because you'd said something not altogether complimentary about him. I don't know if it was this piece or what. Do you have a memory of being called to the phone to be yelled at by Weller? Not on this occasion. I mean, he was very, in later years, I wrote a piece for Mojo, which was completely innocuous. It was about bands changing their images. And it was, you know, like David Bowie. Oh, he changed his image. Duran Duran, they'd started off as blah, blah, blah. Then they did this. Paul Weller. and then. He phoned me up. This was at the height of Britpop to say, I'm nothing like Duran Duran, and offered me out for a fight in Regent's Park. <laughs> but And you took but, him up on that, I assume. I mean, was it, I, was it pistols at dawn? I, I turned him down because, to be honest, I was quite weak and frail at this point in my life. And I think he was very much a friend of Noel Gallagher at this point. But no, in the 80s, he was around a lot. He was quite accessible, and I remember being at some event, and he came up to me and started asking me what what I had meant by the review. This was quite common. It was quite a weird thing about being an NME journalist because we were not a conduit between rock stars and the public, but you would go to a gig, and things like Elvis Costello cornered me in a pub and said, tell Matt Snow I'm not happy. It's like, (laughs) you tell him. (laughs) Why am I not? So I did tell him, and, of course, he was very dismissive. But yeah, it was a period when people who'd been huge chart stars in 1979 had a bit more spare time, shall we say, and would often corner me in the pub with messages for other enemies. But yeah, Weller was genuinely interested in this review because I was trying to talk about what the Style Council were all about and what was the point of them. And he wasn't actually being nasty. He was like, what did you mean by that? Which was quite friendly by Paul Weller's standards at this point. (laughs) And I liked the review. I read the review again, and it's still a bit twee because I was quite a twee writer, trying a bit hard. But it was an attempt to try and work out what the Style Council were for. And I like the Style Council, and they weren't always a popular band, particularly at NME. Let me quote a couple of lines. Weller's intended plans to create a great big furnace of burning soul passion and socialist power have often resulted in very ordinary records onto which a sparky brass section has been tacked. That's kind of my feelings about the Style <laughs> Council. But you're quite nice. And you said, this is the best thing about the Style Council. Although they're patently unable to copy or rather mimic their soulist, S-O-U-L-I-S-T, idols, they often accidentally create little pop gems, which is, which is probably fair. 
I mean, I saw them a couple of times in that period and I just found there was something a bit strained and actually kind of humorless about Paul Weller. I think the problem with that band was the bovine Mick Talbot. <laughs> I mean, he really was, wasn't he? <laughs> it's like looking at a, an animal in a farmyard behind a Hammond organ. Sorry. Carry on. Oh, oh, oh. Straight in there, straight oh. in there. <laughs> no. I heard you so vicious, Bringle. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> Not on the podcast. No, anyway. I mean, look, Weller has a new album out called Fat Pop, and he's kept going, hasn't he? Oh, there's a dog in the background. That's that's Mick Tolbert. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, oh kept, oh, he's, he's kept going. He has kept going. He's a real elder statesman, isn't he? I love that picture of him and... Ron Wood together, and it became a meme around sort of the internet of them as two old ladies. You know, I'm really worried about you know, <laughs> Michelle, yeah. she's gone missing. Yeah, anyone seen Doreen and yes, yeah, Louise or something? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm the greatest fan of Paul Weller. I thought obviously the jam were pretty great, but I found his sort of dad rock, soul R&B thing a bit trying. Because you're the best thing. I did want. I want to talk a bit about. I sh- I stuck this Lloyd Cole piece uh, in between the, the three you suggested we feature, David, and that sort of rang me because I wanted to ask you about the great Lloyd Cole knew my father, <laughs> the Radio Two Twenty O One show. But but first, I mean Lloyd Cole and the Commotions were a very sort of archetypal kind of eighties British group, weren't they? In some ways, you know, quite literate, well read ironic i mean there were groups like that and prefab sprout and and sort of intelligent well well-read groups you're quite favorable to lloyd cole and the commotions now how do you look back on them and why did you title that radio show lloyd cole knew my father well this is a very tangled story but i have no hesitation in telling it <laughs> i was friends with an enemy writer in glasgow called andrea miller and she'd written the first piece about Lloyd Cole and the commotions. They hadn't had a record out, but they had recorded a single down on Mission Street, backed with Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken, which was really good, but hadn't come out, but had got them signed. And I was interested in this, and I really liked it. And then I suddenly remembered that I had been at college. I went to UCL and studied law with a kid called Lloyd, who played the guitar and had been very popular with the girls. And... Lloyd had dropped out of law and gone to Scotland. And I suddenly realised that it was Lloyd Cole. And I hadn't known Lloyd very well at college because he was very cool and just talked to girls. And then, <laughs> then I found myself meeting him. And at a bizarre moment, his manager said to me, can you not say in the interview that you went to college in London with Lloyd? And I think this was because they were repositioning Lloyd as part of the Glasgow wave. You know, this huge rush of Scottish pop that started with Orange Juice and Postcard and Aztec Camera. And while Lloyd was from Derbyshire, his band was Scottish and he did live in Scotland. So I went along with it because I liked the music. But yeah, but I'm still friends with Lloyd. I was talking to him today on Twitter. And, you know, the college connection and all that has been reinforced that we have mutual friends. But yeah, I loved his music. I think Perfect Skin is pretty good. 
that album, Rattlesnakes, I think Kath Carroll reviewed it in the NME, and she said it was one of the records that everybody had that year. Like you had Parallel Lines in 1979 or the Specials album in 1980. In 1983, I think, or four, everybody oh, yeah, had Rattlesnakes. Yeah. And he's still good. He, he's one of those people now who's a cottage industry. You know, He's about 60, makes an album every couple of years if he can afford it. Tours mostly acoustically, places like the Delaware Pavilion, because he can't necessarily afford a full band. But yeah, he's really good, and he's very funny and very dry, yes. self-deprecating. Tell us about Lloyd Cole New, my father. I mean, this was your post-NME kind of incarnation, and you were writing for Q, you later wrote for The Word, and you got together with Stuart McConey and Andrew Collins as a sort of a very funny trio of music writers. Yeah, well, Stuart thought that we should all do something together, because Andrew and Stuart had a show called Collins and McConey's Hit Parade, and I did a radio column on it, and they were sort of around a lot. They were on telly and writing for Clive James. Stuart said we should do a show. Andrew had a great title, which was Lloyd Cole Knew My Father, which kind of really fit as well as being a good pun. So we took the show to Edinburgh, and Steve Coogan said it was the best show at Edinburgh, though he may have said that to everybody. And (laughs) we got a Radio 2 series out of it, and then it got really surreal because Lloyd Cole played the Bloomsbury Theatre, which was the UCL theatre, bizarrely. Played there a couple times. It's a great place. Yeah, super. We supported Lloyd. We did a truncated version of the show. And it was completely surreal, if only because I got so nervous, I drank a lot of beer, (laughs) too much beer, and was not very good on my cues. And afterwards, Ricky Gervais came along, because Ricky had also been at UCL at the same time as me and Lloyd. So it was a very... The three famous people who went to UCL, who went into Rob Relator, Lloyd Cole, Ricky Gervais... And one of the Vinces from the Clash Mark II, who was a physics and astronomy student called Greg. So I, I knew one of the Clash Mark II. But yeah, it was a great experience. It was a great radio show as well because we had musical guests. We had Edwin Collins and Roddy Frame and the bloke from the Icicle Works. So it was, yeah, it was an interesting time. And it was a great way of processing all that enemy trauma all those years of making up the letters and getting people going, you should change your name to the new Morrissey Express and all that kind of (laughs) drivel. Well, look, talking about Morrissey, it brings us on to the second piece that you suggested, which is a review of Morrissey's greatest hits from The Word in March 2008, which is pretty savage because really most people were pretty savage about Morrissey at this point. And I really love this piece. I mean, given that, you know, well, I'm sure you, like me, were a Smiths fan. How did it get so ugly and obnoxious? How did Morrissey turn into this ghastly creature? It's so weird because it's one of those things where you're like, surely we should have seen the signs. And there were these these little, but he was so loved. He was such a great breath of fresh air. Yeah. The Smiths music, you know, was fantastic. And that combination of Johnny Mars, you know, bright, jumping guitar lines, were a bit like High Life, a lot of it. Yeah. With Morrissey's Duranis. You know, it was like Alan Bennett singing with Sonny Ade. It was an unusual... 
in, but the thing was, it wasn't did you write like that rest- in advance, or did that literally just trip off your tongue? I've been working on this. <laughs> I've had teams it's working. So I've just been handed a piece of paper saying we've got it. It's it's uh, Alan Bennett singing with King Sonny Ade. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> It'll do for the podcast. I was once visiting a relative in hospital, and she had depression. We were walking down the long, central corridor of the hospital, which was empty, except for a woman coming towards us. As she drew near, my relative said, You see this woman coming down here? She's tried to commit suicide three times. Hello! But, I mean, it was different to Other Indy. Other Indy was kind of doer and badly played. But Morrissey's white... People go, oh, he's just whiny. But he's not. It's funny. It was a funny persona. And there were little bits in interviews. You know, he would say reggae's vile. And we'd go, well, lots of people don't like reggae. You know, he'd have it in for black pop stars. Well, you know, it's not compulsory to like black music and so on. And it's sort of built up. And then, I don't know, I mean, my whole thing, I think, in that review, if it's not been cut, because some of it has been edited for legal reasons, was that Morrissey... Morrissey's identification with the outsider was an identification with himself. It wasn't a kind of compassionate thing where he felt for other people. He was very solipsistic. He was inside himself and any feelings he had. It's like some people who like animals do so partly, I think, because they don't like people. Oh, controversy there. But now, the signs of Morrissey being a fucking shit were there, and we ignored them for several <laughs> years, mostly for sales figures. Mm. And I was attempting in that review to sort of bring these things out, which to some extent I did. And now, my final comment on this is the things that I got sued for have been literally said by Lisa Simpson in an episode of The Simpsons about a month ago. Oh, Which really? is just literally... Oh, yes, they got very angry, didn't they? They've gotten very angry. Morris's manager got extremely angry about this. It's very bizarre because regardless of what the Simpsons producers have said, it's very clearly a very open attack on Morrissey in person. And they've used language about Morrissey, which I would have thought was litigable, but that's a different story. But, yeah. It's odd that Morrissey hasn't sued because he has literally sued everyone else in the world. So has he sued you? Oh, yes, he has sued me. Wow. What happened? What happened was that we were advised... It was The Word. He sued me in The Word magazine, and The Word's lawyer advised us that we should just take it. And Morrissey fortunately didn't ask for money because that would have caused the paper to collapse and it would have caused me to go on the game again. So that didn't happen. <laughs> Fortunately for everyone. I hope yeah, this, I hope this was, episode doesn't achieve a similar effect in your life, David. <laughs> no, I will be moderate in all things. Although I have often said that if I just said Morrissey was an absolute dick who should give up now, then no jury in the land would have convicted me. But that said... <laughs> Were you to say such a thing in a hypothetical In a hypothetical scenario. scenario. Yeah. Yes. But no, what happened was that a spokesman for the word and me read out an apology in the high court. And that was an end of it. Although the best bit was the lawyer's letter, which I was shown. And one of the points that Morrissey made in this letter was that I had somehow been put up to this by the new musical express. Again, it was a bit like the early eighties, Elvis Costello coming up. People seemed to think that journalists who wrote for the word were actually receiving sealed instructions from the enemy. 
have a go at Morrissey. Oh, no, I've been activated. It's like a sleeper agent. <laughs> uh, Does anyone know if Morrissey sued the enemy when Delhi Fadeli produced that amazing takedown of him as a, an out-and-out racist around a time when he wrapped himself in the Union Jack at Reading Festival, I think? Or is the Mad, Mad Stock Festival? Was Mad, it? it was the Mad yeah, Stock right. Festival. Delhi wrote this big piece about Morrissey, just basically, the, I think almost the first time anyone has explicitly said... Morrissey is a racist in, in such direct terms. But... Yeah, I'm not quite sure. No, Morrissey didn't see you on that. Okay, and I think that's because there were sort of two camps at the enemy. Some, a lot of the staff were against it, argued very strongly that Morrissey wasn't a racist. Uh-huh. And so presumably it was couched in such a way as to basically... Because, yeah, Morrissey was a massive cash cow for the enemy, not oh. to be cynical, though it took a lot to turn against him. But yeah, that was the first time Delhi was the first one to speak up, and it's a brilliant piece. Yeah, whether you agree with Delhi or not, and of course I do. Yeah, I mean, I think the point, the main point you make in this word review, I absolutely concur with, which is that when Morrissey came out the first time, when he, when, he, when the Smiths' Hand in Glove came out, and then the first album, it there was a sense that this was this was some sort of lonely kind of bedsit introvert who had accidentally become a pop icon and was speaking for all the sort of loners and introverts and unhappy young people in, in, in certainly in Britain. And, and what you say at the end is that, is that what vexes me most is that once Morrissey made music that talked about the underdog, the victim and those in the minority, now he makes music that excludes those people. And as you say, just all the compassion and humour, everything that had made Morrissey great in 1983 and for most of the 80s was gone. Yeah. It's just the solips. He just, it, the self-obsession sort of overwhelmed everything. But yeah, songs that made you feel, well, people younger than me, made you feel that you were part of something had gone. And now it was just this endless, bitter whinging about himself. I yes. think the, 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 the last straw for me was when he insisted that Penguin dress his autobiography as a Penguin modern classic. classic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That was, you know, that was it. Yeah. The last piece, David, is about another sort of villain, really. Well, for some, <laughs> for some. Simon, Simon <laughs> Cowell it mainly touched on Simon Cowell. So you call this piece, Pop Has Eaten Itself for the Very Last Time. Another thing you obviously famous for in you know music journo circles is the phrase pop will eat itself which yeah. i loved at the time a band <laughs> a grebo band named themselves after your phrase and you say in this piece for the daily telegraph in june 2011 you say as the inventor of the phrase a totally cool postmodern mantra that had i copyrighted it would be keeping me in quentin tarantino dvds and austin powers soundtrack albums <laughs> <laughs> that idea of pop eating itself where did that sort of how did that come to you it was slightly bizarre because I had just discovered, via the medium of comics, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, the snake, the Aruberos, which, as you know, of course, is the snake that eats its own tail for infinity. And I was really taken with this idea. And, you know, you store it. And sampling technology had just come in. And we were starting to get dance records that were built on the back of other records. And this has now happened completely, of course. But the idea, it just occurred to me that you would soon have records 
that were made entirely of other records. It would have no musicians on, no singing, and just riffed on this and said, and this will happen, and in the end, pot will eat itself. And I put this in the middle of the only the article I happened to be writing at the time, which had nothing to do with the topic. The interview <laughs> with Jamie Wednesday, who became Carter. And then about three months later, I got sent a single by a band called Pop Will Eat Itself, and I did not make the connection. I still have the press release, but not the single, which tells you a lot about the single. But yeah, so Pop Will Eat Itself, thank God, took the phrase, and they popularized it, and they popularized and popularized it. And I even got invited to an exhibition at Piccadilly Circus of art under the title Pop Will Eat Itself about 10 years ago, where I was treated very much like a doddering elderly grandfather from the war. People going, thank you so much for coming. Well done. It's really nice to have you here. And I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> when yeah. was this? When was that, David? This is about 15 years ago. So <laughs> when I was, you know, a sprightly lad of 42. <laughs> but, yeah, the phrase has gone on and on. I'm really proud of it because it accidentally fitted its era. Well, you apply it to, you know, The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent, which I suppose were at their sort of zenith moment in 2011. And you are, I mean, you're pretty scathing about the whole thing. And you say that they've done enormous harm to popular music, stripping it of originality and any other drive than the urge to success. But they've also kept it in the public eye at a time when, by rights, it ought to be in decline. How do you look back like nearly 10 years on that piece? I mean, do you stand by it and did pop eat itself or where, where the hell are we with this snake phenomenon? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I was wrong because obviously pop music is still going. I think that my defense of it would be that this was the era of LimeWire and Napster when pop music was in crisis and people weren't buying music because they didn't have to. And it was also the first era of people being able to access everything on their phones. So the idea of sitting down with your damn set and grooving to the latest 45s had gone. People were just, you know, looking at their phones, playing short bursts of music. But, you know, pop music has survived. And I'm a big fan of K-pop. K-pop, not K-pop. I love K-pop. And I don't always like the individual records, as they say, but the fact that groups like Blackpink and BTS, they brought back in a way, the Motown idea. They brought back massive, world-crushing domination through manufactured pop. So we've got thousands of producers and songwriters and groups coming up. And I think that's a good thing because I've always loved pop. I don't think you get rock music without pop because rock music is oppositional. Yeah, Rock music is teenagers being fed up with the charts. Mm. And we need, you know, pop music's the grit in the oyster. Also, it's great. So... I was I was completely wrong. Simon Cowell didn't kill pop, though he tried. And <laughs> pop music, manufactured and otherwise, is happening. You only have to look at new British acts, particularly coming from areas like grime, to know that yes. pop music cannot be stopped. You know, pop music is still annoying people. There's still street <laughs> music and underground music, but there's still shiny pop music, and I love it. I like the line... A cowl, said my dad, is a medieval bucket for removing rubbish. My mum was more <laughs> forthright. Simon Cowell is a revolting individual. It kind of sums up really. I, I think it's interesting what you say about manufactured pop and how it's kind of necessary for things to be opposed to it. And I find that sound, 
because I, I don't know a few months ago we talked about Sophie the singer who tragically died very young and that is like bubblegum pop to its logical extremes to a point where it becomes almost sort of inverted and harsh again and I, I find that sound also really interesting in and of itself so it's interesting to hear you say that that you like k-pop and that kind of thing because I think that is now that it's possible to manufacture to an absolutely infinitesimal degree everything you can you can control every single musical element so minutely that i think that that manufacturing is is the 21st century in a way it's fascinating that you know we've gone through the feet era f-e-a-t full stop where this kind of lego thing that you'll get charlie xcx featuring bts and then you'll get bts featuring seer then you'll get seer featuring blackpink and there used to be a thing in the 70s where you know if you appeared on someone else's record, you had to use a false name because of label deals. But now that there's only one label, everyone appears on everyone else's record. And it's to the insane, insane extent that you will get, I don't know, Fleetwood Mac featuring Sonia. Or you're, so I'll do a better example in a second. You'll get, I don't know, <laughs> The Crankies featuring Jimmy Page. Every, every, every combination is possible. Metallica yes. featuring Sooty and Sweet. <laughs> It reached the point where the, the pop will eat itself thing is is even more right. That there are virtual reality pop stars. There are VR pop acts now, you know, with a synthesized voice taken from someone else, music. Vocaloids. Vocaloids, is that the name? Oh, it's fantastic. You learn something new every day. Vocaloids. You know, that will always create something that's anathema to me, which is someone in their bedroom with an acoustic guitar. You know, the two will always circle each other, the yin and yang of rock and pop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for, for sure. Uh, the current artist, uh, Wilbur Soot, who is his sweeping young people's online life, and he is that man with an acoustic guitar, a frightfully middle-class English boy singing, strumming his songs with the name Wilbur Soot. Uh, look him up. You'll be horrified. I can absolutely guarantee. <laughs> oh. But isn't that just isn't that just 1964? Isn't that just the British blues boom of extremely nice young men, you know, saying, "Woke up this morning, couldn't find my back issue of the Beano." <laughs> no, exactly no, it's, it's, it's really not. It's it's the South <laughs> Bank of a Saturday, and the buskers you get who you just want to punch in the face as they mutilate "Hallelujah" by Leonard Cohen. That's what it is. Uh. What's wrong with when I was a kid? The buskers just knew Michel and Blowing in the Wind because they were the only two songs that had been written. <laughs> <laughs> David, you've already been very, very funny in this episode. Any listeners who are not aware of this, I mean, you have had a, an illustrious career as a writer for you know, Chris Morris. You've written for Chris Morris and with Chris Morris, Harry Enfield, Mitchell and Webb, Harry Hill. And you were part of the team that won an Emmy for Veep, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Wow. Um, yes. And as a Seinfeld fanatic, David, I have to ask whether you actually intersected with La Dreyfus. I assume you must have met her. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we went o- I went over. You had to do shifts in America. So you'd be – it wasn't very glamorous. You'd end up – they always seem to film in hotels on Veep. 
the nature of the show. So you spent your life in drafty hotels in Baltimore. And yeah, I mean, I was overawed to meet her, but she was amazing. She was very hands-on. She'd work on scenes. And I have a story about an egg and her, which I could do, not briefly, if you like. <laughs> I'd been to the craft, to the food table, and I'd taken a boiled egg for my lunch. But it wasn't a boiled egg. It was a raw egg. And I put it in my pocket for later. I went into my pocket to take out my glasses cleaning cloth, and I broke the egg in my pocket. <laughs> You're probably wondering where this is going. So I had to rinse out my pocket in the toilet of this hotel, and I threw away my glasses cleaning cloth, as you do, because it was eggy. Later on the same day, for the first time, Julia Louis-Dreyfus came up to me to speak, and she said to me, and I'm not making this up, do you have a glasses cleaning cloth? I need to clean my glasses. <laughs> and I could not bring myself to say no, because I have broken a raw egg in my pocket <laughs> and had to throw it away. So I just said no in a weird voice, and she stared at me and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> You're wearing glasses. You don't have a cloth. You just don't want to give me the glasses cleaning yeah, cloth? Exactly. She naturally assumed that I was some kind of weird English guy who had issues. But the last Wait, time which, I saw which her, which is basically true. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't yeah. going to give anyone my glasses cleaning cloth, but I did get to go to the Emmys, and I think I actually gave her a hug at the Emmys because she'd won. She's broken all the records. She's won more Emmys than any Best Living Actress, and I think she'd just wow. broken the record for the first time. So I gave her a hug at the Emmys. So that was nice. That was a bit different from the enemy. On the subject of awards, you have some very interesting stuff on your mantelpiece behind you. There seems to be a fair number of awards-type things lurking there. They're all for best review of Lloyd Cole and the commotions. <laughs> they are entirely just as the enemy. Now, it's actually one of those, it's just a lot of charity shops in Hastings and <laughs> a lot of former pop stars have given away. Someone did say... I went to Manic Street Preachers living in Hastings. I said, I live in Hastings. And one of the Manics said, oh, that's where all our roadies come from. Which gives you a good idea of what life is like in Hastings. <laughs> I mean, you also wrote for The Thick of It, which given that we're now living basically in, in the, the Thick, thick of, of It, it yes. <laughs> yes. that must feel odd because you've basically sort of predicted a bunch all of your stuff. Fault, Quantic, that we're in this mess. <laughs> it was interesting writing on The Thick of It because I came in in the final series and I was just sort of parachuted in. And what Armando Yanucci did with that show was he'd just change everything to reflect what was going on in politics. And at the time, it was the coalition, if you remember that. Yeah. Exciting Farago. So there was a whole new cast. Suddenly, there were these people who were clearly meant to be the Lib Dems. I had no idea what was going on. So I just walk in and smile. So it was a bit like politics. You just smile at people and then hope that people liked your jokes. It was an exciting experience, but... Yeah, you've just had to sort of flying by the seat of your pants, talking to people going, so I'm I'm the minister for this. Okay. It was quite frightening, but a lot of fun. The last thing we should mention before we go on to other stuff on RBP, which we want you to be part of, is your quiz book that's coming out later this year. I think it's called The Quite Difficult, very Quantic-esque title, The Quite Difficult Quiz Book. Now, I didn't know that this facet of your existence, David, that you, you're a sort of quiz master general. When did that start? Tell us about the book. Oh, gosh, it was sort of in the early 2000s. I, yeah, I just remember going to a quiz with a, a friend called Simon Barnett, and the quiz was terrible, and just saying to him, we should do this. So we did a quiz together, 
And then I started doing quizzes on my own and then did them at events and festivals and pubs. And I just, I don't know, it's a lot more fun hosting a quiz than it is being in a quiz because you can be rude to people. But again, it was a repository for trivia. You know, just all the stuff that builds up when you're a music journalist and you, you know, you just go, did you know that OMD had two songs called Joan of Arc? Did you know that Bob Dylan did a demo, blah, blah, blah. And it all builds up. And so you expand it to non just non-rock stuff. And then after 20 years, you've got enough for a book. I love the question that's in the press release, which is how many Shirley's sang a Bond theme? I love that. I think it's brilliant. And the answer is? Three. Brilliant. Three. Who are the other two apart from Bassey? Well, Manson. Manson, garbage. And the other one is Sheena Easton. Is Sheena Shirley Easton? Oh, that's brilliant. God, I wonder if that's in the book. I'd better phone up the publishers. Stop the... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't go to print yet. And I was happy because I asked my... I've got a friend who's an absolute Bond fanatic. I mean, he, you know, he flies to the see the premieres and stuff and he, he loves Bond. And I asked him the question and he didn't get it. So that's, that's, that's a good fantastic. sign. But, well, the whole idea of the book was to be a book that you could read because I once went to a quiz in a pub in Dartmouth and it was questions like, what percentage of women are insured for driving? And it's like, who cares what the answer is? You know, it's like, well, I wanted to be the kind of quiz where if you didn't know the answer, it would be mildly interesting. Like, right, what was the first of it in 1967 and the last of it in 2003? And the first was with Tomorrow and the last was with Scanner. Phrase that appallingly badly. The first was in 1967 with Tomorrow and the last in 2003 with Scanner. I'm baffled. Um, you've, lost, you've lost both of us. I've no idea what you're talking about. I like about. it, but I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> right. The answer is John Peel session. <laughs> right. Ah. Should have guessed that. But yeah, so I, I would also just try and do things that weren't other quizzes. One of my favourite rounds was Martin Amis character or Blur song. <laughs> you can pretty much fill those in yourself. Okay. <laughs> Well, fantastic. That's so. It's called. Am I right in saying it's the quite difficult quiz Quantics, book? It's all Quantics. Quantics quite difficult quiz book, available from somebody somewhere sometime. I think October <laughs> it comes out. It's going to be it's the brilliant. perfect nice. Christmas present for the perfect all Christmas gift. Bitter, disenchanted former readers of the enemy, isn't it? Which is up to three hundred people, I think, <laughs> in, <laughs> roughly in the Hastings area. Roughly in the Hastings area. <laughs> We're going to just move on to, look, thanks for talking so much about your career. Just a, a delight to, uh, to have. It's on. been very real being here. I hope you will stick around and just jump in, interrupt if you think you've got something, you know, more interesting to say than, than any of the rest of us, which may be the case. Teenage Fan Club have a new album out this week, so we thought we'd make them the featured artist. Um, it's called Endless Arcade. I love Teenage Fan Club. I joined Teenage Fan Club. I won't hear a word against them. Whatever anybody else says about them on this podcast or anywhere else, I will ask you, Mr. Quantic, whether you have any feelings, any strong feelings about the fannies at all. Yeah, I have heard this album, and it's one of their better ones. It's one of their best ones, I think. I love Teenage Fan Club. I came in during the concept era, Denim, all that kind of stuff. Stayed for Grand Prix. I've got pretty much all their albums since. And this one, Home, is it called? That's it, no, a the, single. No, no, the, this new one is called Endless Arcade. 
that's the one. Yeah. See, I love it so much I know the title. But no. <laughs> it's that's got Errol's Childs on it. I'm right about that. It's brilliant. It's just a slightly woody melodies. And I love it when they get going and just start playing the guitar. And they're probably still playing that song somewhere at the moment. But no, they're fantastic. It's one of those bands who just never go bad. So for those of us not in the know, someone give us a quick rundown about what Teenage Fan Club are all about. You, you could say they're a rather outmoded group in this day and age. They are a guitar band, and guitar bands are, are, are almost like outlawed now. You can't really be a guitar band anymore, but they're going to just keep playing that furrow. I love them from the word go, really. The, the first, well, the single that I remember, Everything Flows, which was which was the first single I recall, and then... And then Bandwagon-esque, I still think, is a pretty fantastic record. Grand Prix. They are, I mean, for anyone who ever loved, like, The Birds, The Beatles, and particularly Big Star, Alex Chilton in his sort of heyday, you can't not really love vintage teenage fan club uh, i think they wrote great fucking melodies and beautiful guitar riffs i think that's precisely why i don't like teenage fan club is because <laughs> i loved big star and i don't want to hear iterations Re- of that yeah, sort of music I get it see i hate big star so i like <laughs> i like to it's like someone who likes the monkeys and hates the beatles yeah it's like people who like japan and hate roxy music <laughs> A big star are just, oh, I was so disappointed because they've been so built up to me. Really? And Teenage Fan Club, I just thought, this is great. If this is big star, I prefer it. I don't know how anyone could love Teenage Fan Club and not love Back of a Car by, by Big Star. But there we go. We'll have to have a, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to talk about this. One some of other life's time. great quandaries. I think it is. <laughs> For me, it would be. Uh, it's a new quandary to me, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to think about it. That can be the next book, David. Quantics quandaries. Quantics, Quantics quandaries. I like it. Why big star a crap? <laughs> We've got three teenage fan club pieces. One by John Robin Sounds before they've even released the first single, I think. One by Cliff Jones in Melody Maker, which is very sort of very muso. It's all about valves and Neve desks, valve amplifiers and Gibson gold top Les Pauls. It's about their sound. And I'm sure Mark would find it very sort of retromaniac. But (laughs) fuck it. He likes them and I like them. The last piece I really love, which is former podcast guest Jude Rogers, Writing in 2016, I think it's when their previous album came out. It's a very sort of melancholic piece about them growing older and her her sort of growing older with them. You know, that Teenage Fan Club are a group that you kind of check in with at every stage of your life. She defines them their sound very well, I think. She says, it's mid-paced guitar pop taken somewhere divine. It has wide-eyed, wonder-seeking melodies, lyrics that roll in bliss or bruise with their tenderness and pitch-perfect West Coast-influenced harmonies from its three singer-songwriters. I think that puts it really beautifully. I mean, you either respond or you don't, but I think they are three great singer-songwriters in one in one group, although I believe Jerry Love has now left Teenage Fan Club. Have you, have you followed them through each record, David? In the sense that I will get the record, play it for a bit, and put it to one side, So, which is one of the tragedies of being a music journalist, that you get sent links to things and downloads and play it a bit but i always check in and i honestly think that this particular album whatever it's called endless <laughs> arcade i think it's it is a special one 
Well, I mean, one of my things is that there are bands who have really long careers and they suffer from the thing that everyone goes, this has to be the album. This one, this one is great. Whereas in the end, when you look back at someone like Bob Dylan, there might be nine average ones in a row and then a classic. But when you add it all together, when you do your greatest hits, you know, it's, it's brilliant stuff. And I think teenage fan clubs certainly are way above the average. And yeah, they're just a sound as well. Yeah. Well, we put together a, a playlist actually on Spotify of 30 great teenage fan club tracks. So anyone who needs to be convinced or convinced that they're shit. I must point out that we didn't put this playlist together. Is, is, is that you the royal did, Barney. Is the royal we. <laughs> You really I don't put like this <laughs> together. I didn't see any point in consulting my colleagues. <laughs> right. Okay, look, so there we go. The fannies. God bless them and all who sail in them. We are now going to talk about the week's new audio interview, Mark. So I hand over to you here. Yeah, well, this is the always fabulous Marianne Faithful being interviewed by Adam Sweeting in July 1998 in Salzburg, where she's performing at the Salzburg Festival, the Brecht Vials, Seven Deadly Sins, and other things. So they talk about that, and it's interesting. She talks about the new album she's recording with Daniel Lanois, Vagabond Ways. But let's listen to this first clip. Adam asks her about her self-destructive past. Thinking yourself as a self-destructive person, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> you don't seem to be. Alas, I am a, a natural-born <laughs> fucking winner. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about it. But, no, I, I, I must have been living. I mean, to get that self-destructive, I, there must have been something very wrong. I don't know what. For me, there must have been something very wrong that made me want to die rather than live the life I was living. And it's quite serious, that. Yeah. 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 So a lot of things were really wrong. And um, and they slowly, with, with help, of course, that, and some of them just worked themselves out. I sit and watch as tears go by. I love listening to her talk about herself. I mean, and she will happily talk about herself for hours to anyone who asks a question, you know. She's very funny. She's very dry. But, you know, there's a sort of honesty, which is also bullshit. There's a certain amount of showing off involved in her honesty, I sort of suspect. But it's, it's good stuff. Again, she will always talk about her past. She talks about being discovered by Andrew Luke Oldham, about her beauty. Yes, I was a very pretty girl. A very pretty girl. <laughs> with magnificent breasts. Well, it's just like breasts. the Quentin Crisp tribute band. <laughs> I was very beautiful. People fawned over me wherever I went. I was once given an iguana. <laughs> <laughs> Next clip we're going to listen to, she talks about David Dalton writing her sort of inverted commas autobiography. Let's have a listen to this. I really have been as honest as I possibly could. I mean, it's it's terribly relative, of course, mm. truth, I'm afraid. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to get so posh about it, but, you know... 
and it, it and I never pretended it was anyone else's truth, but it is mine. It was, and I've really, and it wasn't easy because a lot of the things I told David, he didn't believe me. <laughs> and then they would be confirmed, like months later, by he would ask someone else, and what I told him, he did a lot of checking. Yeah. And he kept thinking, he kept saying to me, you know, I think you should really take Pentothal. And we should, uh, you know, uh, what? The, tr- the truth drug. Yeah. Because he didn't believe me. And he had a lot of, like everybody comes to, to I mean, not everybody, but David did come to me with certain mythology of his own. Yeah. Which was particularly malevolent and untrue. <laughs> Just what you want out of a biographer, really, isn't it? And t- to be fair, she also says that he's now a great friend of hers. That she became very fond of David Dalton. I actually think it's a brilliant, pretty brilliant book. I love it. It is a I'm great gonna, book. Yeah. True or not? <laughs> we'll play a clip at the end where she talks about being the prisoner of the, the 60s mythology. She says she's not precious about how she's depicted, but she drew the line at the Mars bar myth which is fair enough. Still friends with, particularly with Keith Richards. She says it's now is a much better time to be young and beautiful than it was in her day, which is, I think, quite an interesting observation. And uh, how she didn't be what she could have been. She could have married aristocracy and been a sort of grand dame and that that actually, she, you know, that wasn't who she wanted to be. I really enjoyed listening to this. I mean, she's marvellous. So the reason we're talking about her is that she also has a new record out this week. Very, very Marianne-esque. It's called She Walks in Beauty, and it's basically spoken word poetry. She's reading great romantic poems by Byron and Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth to the musical accompaniment of Nick Cave's sort of right-hand man, Warren Ellis. Um, I think I've heard one track. I can't remember which one it is, but it's, it's Marianne declaiming over Warren's music. David, what's your take on La Faithful? I kind of like it. I don't like the records much because there is a kind of meltdown school. It's like a small group of people. Warren Ellis, Nick Cave to some extent. It's like Marianne Faithful. Tom Waits. It's what Kingsley Amos used to call in a different context, pots and pans music. (laughs) All these people who turn up with Patti Smith on the stage at the South Bank with their pots and pans bang their way through some old Captain Beefheart songs. And I'm being excessive. I mean, I think Marianne Faithful is so cool. I do like a lot of the stuff. And I also will be grateful to her because I once had to do a radio show where I had to read a comedy piece. And she was one of the guests. And I suddenly realized I was going to do a joke about the Rolling Stones. And I was sat next to Marianne. It was like being in a speeding car. (laughs) And I did the joke which was the joke was that the Rolling Stones have been going for so long that they are kind of travelling jail. And she laughed. <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's fine. If she's going to laugh at that. So I think, she, I mean, I wish she would try something different. I understand that now is probably not the stage to the career to do that collaboration with Blackpink. But <laughs> it would be nice if she stepped out of that, that sort of resonance FM world of, Shirley Collins and Mark Rebot. I don't know who Mark Rebot is, but he seems to be on every single record that got reviewed in the NME in 1985. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's you're talking really about. I mean, you could call it the Hal Wilner Club in a way, couldn't you? Yes. All of I those met, people have have done things with the late well Hal Wal Hilmer. Wal Hilmer. Val Kilmer. Don't get him well today. <laughs> 
heartwarming story of Val Kilmer. <laughs> anyway, Marianne, what can we say about Marianne? She's she's uh, she should get like the order of the guard. I mean, she survived. Or she survived COVID. I think much to her own surprise. Yes, because the press release says that this was recorded just before and during. Yeah, it says uh, she nearly died. She got it very badly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think ago. everyone sort of was thinking about rolling out the obituaries and stuff, and then nope, still here releasing an album. So good for her, I say. It's brilliant news, and it's also great news for the forest because the amount of paper expended on telling Marianne Faithful's life story will end <laughs> life on this planet. <laughs> Especially in the same, you know, in the same months as Prince Philip. I think that you're right; it would have been terminal, really, wouldn't it? If you'd done an album with Prince Philip and Hal Wilner, there'd be no end to it. <laughs> We need to wrap up fairly soon, but just to mention that news, very sad news came in last night. I mean, you mentioned the birthday party at the very beginning of this episode, David, and this awful news came in that Anita Lane had died in Australia. And as any Nick Cave fan, birthday party fan will know, Anita was a sort of muse to Nick and, and a kind of honorary member almost of, of the birthday party. And I knew her pretty well so i feel very sad that that, that she's gone but she was a really important and inspiring figure for nick a a true kind of bohemian i mean did you ever did you ever meet anita back in those days david i didn't they weren't really my lot but it is awful news and you know thoughts with at cave and family and friends at this point i i mean all i knew of her was that she was a very private person she never turned up in the various feasts of nick cave press and stuff like that Mm, sure sure well we'll say bye to anita at this point and i'm going to hand over to you mark to talk us through your highlights from the last couple of weeks yeah last week was really all about live reviews we got penny valentine disc music echo may 67 reviewing Jimi hendrix experience and garnet mims savile theater she says if you could see electricity it would look like Jimi hendrix London Savile Theatre on Sunday, Hendrix proved, if proof were needed, that there is no other explosive force on British pop scene today to match him. His resplendent figure, tall, snake-like, in scarlet velvet suit and frilled shirt, his hair like a black halo around his head, his guitar like another limb to be used with his body. Which I think is a pretty sensational description of Jimi Hendrix live in 1967. Allman Brothers Band, Winterland, San Francisco, Philip Elwood, the San Francisco Examiner in October 71, Dwayne's shimmering solos wail out over the churning ensemble like a fire siren. Dwayne died a month later, a month after that review. Oh, really? It was published, yeah. And lastly, from last week, Giovanni Dodomo for Record Mirror reviewing Bob Marley and the Wailers at Lyceum in London in, in July 75, which is the famous Bob Marley live albums recorded at that show. And he says, The poignant No Woman No Cry stood its ground against such cocksure stalwarts as kinky reggae and get up stand up, and even the melodic stir it up proved a lot earthier than it's ever sounded on record. And of course, No Woman No Cry was released as a single from that live album and was the big br- breakthrough hit for Bob Marley. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm interested that he spotted that particular song in, in that. This week, I got a pretty tawdry stuff. I mean, this is the marvellous Maureen O'Grady interviews 
Freddie Lennon, John Lennon's dad, who had come out of the woodwork. He had even made his own record. And he said, it's no gimmick. The words of my song came naturally and sincerely, and that proves it. It's, you know... I didn't even revolting. know that John Lennon's dad made a record. Well, it, uh, he's now an artist on Rock's Back Pages, we glad. <laughs> I actually managed to find the, find the picture <laughs> sleeve of his single. And wow. he's in, Isn't he, it cool? Something like, it's, that's the story of my life. And it's also... It's supposed to have the same tune as a later Lennon classic by possible coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, gosh. Philip Elwood, again, sees Led Zeppelin at Fillmore West in 69. Having really praised their first shows in San Francisco earlier that year, he really turns against this band. His vocalist plant has apparently decided to go the grunt squirm innuendo route, which made The Doors Jim Morrison an infamous egocentric theatrical bore, which is, Ooh. yeah. Um, As opposed to early Led Zeppelin when it was just <laughs> yes. feminist poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Seismic shift between Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2. <laughs> Absolutely. Lon Goddard interviews for Record Mirror January 1970. January 1970, so this is only a, a month after it happened. Interviews Mick Taylor about the experience of playing Altamont. And Mick Taylor, obviously, for those who don't know, Rolling Stones guitar lead, then lead guitar player. He says, after about five numbers, there seem to be fights breaking out everywhere. I don't know who is starting them. It's very interesting because you, in this interview, you get the sense that he's at one side of the stage and he really has no idea of what's going on at all. It's, it's just, just chaos. <laughs> Lastly, Verdeen White of Earth, Wind and Fire to Barry Kane, Record Mirror 78. None of us drink or take drugs. I've broken up with two ladies because of it. <laughs> Verdeen. <laughs> and also, Sorry, I, don't, lucky. I don't believe him. I just don't believe him. <laughs> I could be wrong. He says, success is a mystery to blacks, whereas to whites, it's a way of life because he's been taught in the ways of dynasty. So there we go. Uh, I did have a... A couple of prefab Sprout Paddy McAloon quotes, but I think I'll leave them on the table. Over to you guys. In the interest of time, I'll mention the aforementioned Matt Snow, an interview with Mike Oldfield in 2009, mainly about tubular bells, which is which is uh, very good value. It's actually really interesting. Smash pop hit tubular bells. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Can I just interrupt? I'm sorry, yes. but it's... We mentioned Stephen Wells earlier. He interviewed Mike Oldfield once and talked about sex. And Mike Oldfield said, Stephen, are you a member of the Mile High Club? To which Stephen famously replied, does wanking count? (laughs) 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 To which which Oldfield's answer was? Have you heard Herges Rich? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hysterical. That's brilliant. There's also, I just mentioned briefly, Richard Williams's Guardian obituary of Nick Toshers, who died in 2019, and I would say is one of the great writers on Rock's Back Pages. Yeah. We're privileged to have his work. Impossible, crazy, Hunter S. Thompson-type son of a bitch that he was. 
he wrote like a dream and you can read his stuff on RBP. I mean, he's, he's particularly fantastic. I mean, he, he, he was sort of Boswell to Jerry Lee Lewis for a while, which is fairly extraordinary. And yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Barney. I just adore reading his stuff. And Richard mentions how he came to London. There was a, uh, like the William Hill sort of sports book award or something. And his Sonny Liston book was yeah. up for that. Maybe even won it. I can't remember, but he managed to get into a fight with somebody who was praising the book or whatever was going on and and was in, in essentially escorted out of the building and poured into a taxi. So <laughs> he liked to drink, figure. didn't he? He liked to drink, did old Nick Tosh's. He did like a drink. He did like a drink. Man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Jasper, over to you. Just a couple of quick things to mention. First of which, sort of on the topic of pop eating itself, is a review of the, the Brit Awards 2001, a report on, on that by Dave Simpson in The Guardian, the headline of which is Prize Fools. And it concludes on a note of wondering whether the bands that are sort of up and coming will survive. Great as these bands may be, history is not on their side. By the time newer signings are developed enough to be properly marketed, the public appetite has often changed. However, in the same way that Coldplay dispensed with their own new Radiohead tag by delivering an excellent album, there's every chance that I Am Clute, Alfie, etc. will be able to form their own identity. And if they don't, well, at least they won't have to smile and shake hands with next year's equivalent of Anton Deck. <laughs> yes, yes. Or Mick, when was the Mick Fleetwood, Samantha Fox, Britain? 1989. It actually gets oh, mentioned in that. Does when it, it? When presenters Mick Fleetwood and Sam Fox proved, proved unable even to handle an auto cue. We'll never forget. <laughs> Next up is a really interesting long interview. Francis Morgan in The Wire interviewing Mika Levy, who was in Mikachu and The Shapes and then wrote the soundtrack to a film called Under the Skin, which is sort of psychological horror film, which, oh, is, great which is fantastic, fantastic soundtrack. And she talked really interestingly about scoring, about you know the process of writing that, and just her mu- approach to music in general. So that's just well worth a read. And it's, if you haven't seen the film as well, the soundtrack to it is phenomenal. It, that's the film based on Michelle Faber's novel, isn't it, I think? Yes. Am I right? That's right. Um, quite a different adaptation. Both are great, though the novel is absolutely terrifying. We're hoping to get Michelle on, on the podcast. We actually got some music writing by Michelle on, because he he wrote a piece about The Boys Next Door, David, um, before oh they God. incarnated into The Birthday Party. So, so he's an Australian. Delighted uh, to have those things on Rock's Back Pages. And he's writing a book about music at the moment. So when he's done that, it comes out. We'll have him on the podcast too. It should be great. Wow. That'd be great. I also love Mika talks about working with the London Sinfonietta on a on an album and trying to take them out of their comfort zone. There was one bit that we'd printed out some MF Doom lyrics and we asked them to play the lyrics as you would read them. So I had to explain who that was. All the players were great, but you had to win them over, you know. If you say to them, just improvise and feel it, they're going to be like, you obviously don't know what you're doing. So you've got to set the limitations, set the variables and work like that. She's just, she's very articulate, very interesting about, about all things music. And lastly, I want to mention, Jeff Tamarkin interviews Kamasi Washington, who's, a, who's an American jazz musician who I rather like. And I've seen him a couple of times and he always plays, or usually he plays with his dad as part of the band. And there's always a sort of featured solo for his dad, who's also a saxophonist, which is really sweet. And he talks about that in this interview. When we were kids, my dad made a decision not to be a touring musician, to stay at home and be there for us, Kamasi says. I'd see him playing around the house and around town, and I always wished he played more. When the epic came out, I had my first tour coming up, and he said, you need another saxophone player? 
I was like, yeah, it's something that I've always wanted for him. And he jumped on, which I just think is very hard. Oh, that's I mean, lovely. Very lovely. And it's, yeah, a, it's a well, nice thing to see there's on stage dynamic. It's just really nice. He's a good player too. Terrific. It's another heart, another heartwarming story. <laughs> 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 like a trip to the vets. Brilliant. Well, my gosh, we've had such fun, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope we haven't kept you from probably far more important and lucrative activities. <laughs> Chance would be a fine. <laughs> <laughs> so look out for David's quite difficult quiz book in the autumn. That Put that down on your Christmas list for your auntie or whoever it might be, that special person in your life. And that's it. We'll be back next week with a special episode to mark a hundred episodes of our podcast so it'll be just mark jasper and myself next week we don't even know what the hell we're going to be doing without a guest so it could <laughs> just be a complete car crash tune in just to see be, what the hell be we shorter. do it'll be shorter <laughs> it'll be shorter yeah, it's going to be very short it's about going to be about seven and a half minutes long so we'll be there and then we're back with a guest in a couple of weeks it's slated to be marshall crenshaw hoping to talk to him about bob dylan's former producer tom wilson he's making a documentary about so there we are and mark you're going to talk us out with the last clip well it's it's just dear old marianne extolling the 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 60s mythology that surrounds her brilliant the usual fun wonderful and on that note we'll all say goodbye thank you so much david thank you david it's great thank you i loved it Do you worry to some extent that you, you, you became a prisoner of the whole 60s thing? Or that does it, I'm sure anyone who lived through it in, in, in the limelight sort of did in a way. Especially me. <laughs> yes. Especially me. Mm. Yes, I did. It was not really my scene. Yeah. It wasn't. I can't really blame anyone. But I was too young to really know what was going on at first and what I was doing. And... And um, and at the same time, I'm really glad I was there. I mean, it's all turned out okay. Phenomenal thing to have And they're still all friends of mine, you know. Mick and Keith and Bob, and they love me. So it's, and I love them. That was Marianne Faithful in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1998, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Quantic. Pre-order Quantic's quite difficult quiz book from any good bookseller. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.